As we begin our time of study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for the blessings of our people joined together through your spirit and through your word. Lord, as we open your word to study from it, to hear from it today, Lord, I pray that you would bless us, that you would open our hearts, that we might receive the truth of your word, and that we might live by it as those who have been called out by your spirit to live together in unity as a church and to work together for the good of this world and for the good of your kingdom. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study through the Apostles' Creed. And we've been looking at the different sections and clauses of the Apostles' Creed to understand what it is that Christians should believe. And uh, as I've explained early on, that this is an ancient statement of faith that really has sort of coalesced to express what it is that every Christian should believe and should hold to. And so we've looked at each section as each section uh, studies the, the person and work of each person of the Trinity. And so we've seen God the Father and God the Son. And so last week we started on the last section, which is focused on the works or the person and works of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to look at the first of the works of the Holy Spirit as we continue in this study. But as we've done each time and and with the intention of us eventually memorizing this so that we can uh, have it in our repertoire, in our mental repertoire as a, a means of stating our faith, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. It's in the bulletin, in the center of your bulletin. It may be a little different from what you might have recited in other churches, but we're going to recite it together based on what is printed there in the bulletin. So join me in reciting that uh, as a statement of our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As I just mentioned, we're going to take that first statement of the works of the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints. Now, uh, those could be considered two different clauses, and for many people they do break them down into two different clauses, but I want to consider them together, the Holy Universal Church and the communion of saints, because I feel like they deal pretty much with the same subject. And so today I want you to understand that as Christians, we, we don't believe that Jesus stopped the works that he did at the cross. That at the cross, he was done with the works that he had for the world. And so he just uh, ascended into heaven and is resting now. And we don't believe that those works even ended with the resurrection. His works only began there. 
and starting in Jerusalem and then, then in Judea and Samaria and then throughout the rest of the earth, Jesus, since his ascension into heaven, has been through the work of his Holy Spirit and through the work of his church, he has been building his kingdom. And he has been building that kingdom through the growth of a family and an institution that we call the church. Jesus Christ has established the church as his chief authority in this world and the only place where godly unity and edification and sanctification are found. The church is the unique institution through which God's Spirit is at work in this world. So we confess that the church is holy, universal, and a communion of blood-bought saints because it is the bride and the body of Jesus Christ. So as we confess our belief in this holy, universal church, I want you to understand, as we've done pretty much each time we've looked at a clause in the Apostles' Creed, I want you to understand what we don't mean when we confess this and what we do mean. So to address what we don't mean in confessing our belief in the church, we have to address a pernicious virus that has infected American society and, by consequence, has infected the American church. And I'll, I'll call this virus libertarian individualism. Now, individualism by itself is not a bad thing. Individualism is really, quite honestly, what built this country. And individualism is the belief that you, by your own merit and by your own will, have a rights and responsibilities that are given to you by God. And they, number one, cannot be taken away from you by government. And you have that responsibility, those responsibilities, regardless of your family background or your ethnic background or where you came from in this life. And so it's a beautiful thing because it means that we believe that if you work hard enough and you put in the work and you study hard enough and you do and you and, and you have a little bit of God's providence and luck in your life, then you can be what you whatever you set your mind to be, that you are not bound by your class or your, or, or your social structure or whatever it might be, that you can excel in our country because we believe that each man and each woman has a personal responsibility and personal rights given to them by God that, uh, that they can exercise as an individual. Um, but unfortunately, over the last century, this focus on individualism has taken a more libertarian bent, meaning that we have removed the sense of individual responsibility and only focused on individual rights. So now we believe that as long as a person isn't harming anyone else, he is free to do with his life whatever he pleases. Gone are any concerns for social order, for the good of the, uh, of the family, for civic institutions, or for the future of our country. What matters is what you do with your story, what you do with your life, and that is all that matters. As an American, let me just say, not as a preacher or as a Christian in general, but as just an American, let me just say this is no way to build a country. 
This is no way to live in a society with other peoples to say to other people to say that it doesn't matter what I do with my life. I, I'm going to do me and you do you and you, I'm not worried about anything else that happens in our society. And we see the results of this in the decay of civic institutions. We see the result of this in the decay of the church. We see this result in the decay of our expectations for our own responsibilities as jurors and public servants and soldiers and all of that. And as a Christian, I can say with all confidence that there is no justification for libertarian individualism in Scripture. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as the idea that I do me, I live my own life, I write my own story, that does not exist in Scripture. But this form of individualism has led to two false beliefs that have infected the church and that I want to address today. For one, there has arisen the belief that you can be a Christian without being a part of a local church. Now, unfortunately, I think this false belief has been encouraged by the church itself because I think that you have uh, church leaders who have said with good intention that church membership cannot save you. Now, at face value, that is absolutely true. It is absolutely true that you are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. That is absolutely true, and I do not want you to hear me at all denying that. But what is true is that you cannot be the Christian that God has called you to be apart from the church. You cannot continue in the Christian life to walk in faith, to walk in sanctification apart from the life of the church. This is biblical it is true in every part of the New Testament, and it is something that we cannot deny. For one, many of you, in fact, probably all of you, can say that it is through the ministry and the work of the church that you heard the gospel, that you came to faith. It is through the work of the church in a, in a revival service or in a Sunday school class or listening to a preacher on Sunday morning that you heard the gospel and believed and came to faith. And even if you heard the gospel on a radio program or a, a Bible in a hotel room or an evangelistic rally, those were still the results of the ministry of the church. Also, as we'll see in just a little bit, the church is the only place authorized by Jesus Christ himself and empowered by the Holy Spirit where discipleship and edification happens. You cannot walk in the Christian way apart from the ministry of the church. I want to say that again. You cannot walk in the Christian way apart from the ministry of the church. There is no such thing in the New Testament. Second, there is the false belief of cafeteria Christianity. Uh, we are so individualistic in our society that we believe ourselves to be the sole judge of our spiritual diet. So like a customer at a buffet, we take a bit of doctrine from a TV evangelist, a scoop of discipleship from a Christian radio, a, a splash of teaching from Instagram, and a hint of accountability 
from the local church. Instead of being faithful to a consistent doctrine and a way of faith, we are a hodgepodge of different beliefs, some contradictory and some even heretical at times. Instead of being under the discipline of our local church and its leadership, we question everything because some celebrity preacher that we don't even know said something different from what our preacher or deacons or Sunday school teacher might have said. So now that we understand what we don't mean when we confess our belief in the Holy Universal Church, let's consider what we do mean. To see that, let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the, pro- the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So from this passage, I want you to see that the church is three things. The church is one in purity, it is one in practice, and it is one in purpose. So first, in verses 1 through 4, notice that the church is one in purity. So in the Apostles' Creed, we confess that the church is holy. And we do so because we believe that it is a body of those who have been called out by God's Spirit and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Greek word for church in your New Testament is ekklesia. And the word literally means, ecclesia means the called out ones, those who have been called out by God. So notice two aspects of this purity in verses 3 and 4. First, Paul says that believers should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, it is because you have been joined to it by the Holy Spirit. 
At some point, at some point through the preaching of the gospel or through someone's witness in your life, the Holy Spirit brought you to understand the truth and you were changed. And when that happened, you were united to the body of Christ. You were united to his church. Second, in verse four, it says that you were called to one hope. Now, this is an amazing thought. And I love to have this thought on a Sunday morning as I get up to preach. And I I try to think of this quite regularly. That everyone in this room, but not just everyone in this room, everyone in this world, this morning, or at their time this morning, (laughs) who is a believer in Jesus Christ, has gotten up and gone to church and worshiped together because everyone around this world who professes faith in Jesus Christ has one hope. We all have the same hope. We are all united in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that that brings for us. The promise that he will cause us to be resurrected too. That he will give us eternal life through the work that he has done in his life and death and resurrection. And because we are united by his spirit in that hope of resurrection, the church is holy. Now, the church over the years have has done terrible things. We have persecuted other religious groups. We have used power when we had it for our own ends and for sinful ends. We have uh, deceived people at times. Uh, The church has been wrong in a number of occasions. And the tendency is, uh, especially on on a local level, if you have been hurt by another church member or you disagreed with the pastor or you didn't like the direction that the church went in a particular way, the tendency is to curse the church as a whole. And to say that I don't want to have anything to do with that institution because of the harm it has done in one case or another. But the truth is that regardless of its past, regardless of its sins, the church is still the bride of Christ. And Jesus Christ does not see his church as a blemished, blameful thing, but as the blemishless, blameless bride that he bought with his own blood. The church stands forgiven and redeemed, not because we ourselves are holy, not because we ourselves are perfect, not because we ourselves are good, but because our Savior is good and holy and perfect. And he is, by his Spirit, making us perfect, year after year, generation after generation, because of the work of His Spirit in His church. And so you can malign her if you will, but the church is the bride of Christ, and so she is holy. You can hate her if you want, but the church is the temple of God, and she is pure. You can persecute her if you will, but the church is the new Israel, and she is the chosen of God. Second, in verses 5 and 6, notice that the church is one in practice. In these verses, Paul expounds on this one hope that we share. And he says that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. Now, in the creed, we confess 
that the church is universal. And I mentioned a while back that there were two words in the Apostles' Creed that I had changed to keep some good Baptist from freaking out. One, one is, uh, the word, I changed the word hell to grave, and he descended into hell. And the other is right here in the Holy Catholic Church. The original creed states the Holy Catholic Church. Now, I didn't change that word because it's a bad word, but because I didn't want any of y'all to freak out before I could get to this subject and preach on it. But the word Catholic means literally universal or uh, universally accepted. It is not a designation of the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic is no more the domain of the Roman Catholic Church than the word Orthodox is the domain of the Eastern Orthodox Church or Christ is the domain of the Church of Christ. The word Catholic means universal or all-embracing. It is not identifying a specific denomination, but the fact that all of Christianity is united together under a common confession. Now, when I say that, at first blush, you might say, now, wait a minute, preacher. I know that there are pro- you could throw a rock. I don't know. You couldn't throw a rock from here and hit another church. You'd be chunking it if you could throw a rock from here and hit another church. But yeah, I know you could go downtown, Greenville, and chunk a rock and break a window in any direction of a church, right? And, and I know those churches are from different denominations and, and they hold to different practices. And so how is it, how can we say that we all have a common confession? How can we say that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, when there seem to be, I think at last count, 45,000 different denominations in the world today? Well, there are a few things that I want to point out to answer this question. First of all, not all denominations exist because of doctrinal disagreements, but because of regional or ethnic or practical background, uh, practical differences. So, for example, there are 65 different Baptist denominations in the U.S. Some of those are black denominations or Korean denominations or Chinese denominations. They're different because of different, pra- different uh, cultural practices or different, uh, even different languages. Some are separated based on a region of the country, and some are just separated because they were started by different missionary efforts. But for the majority of those Baptist denominations, we would find that we hold mostly the same practices and probably would let pastors from those different denominations preach and even lead in our church. So the same can be said of Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans. Second, just because there are, different, uh, there are differences of conscience when it comes to certain practices, it doesn't mean that we think that every other denomination is non-Christian. If a denomination holds to the essential doctrines of the Apostles' Creed, they are Christian. And all Bible-believing denominations, from Presbyterians to Pentecostals, hold to that. And lastly... I have found that denominations do serve some benefit in the life of the church. Now, one could argue that the whole reason for the Protestant Reformation, in fact, I I would argue this, is that 
the Roman Catholic Church had become so entrenched, entrenched in its own understanding of Scripture that it dangerously neglected an important doctrine of the faith. It dangerously neglected the idea that salvation is by faith alone. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. So when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, the resulting Reformation spread because people began to read their Bibles and through the power of the Holy Spirit to trust in the, the Bible as the sole authority. And so John Calvin read scripture, read scripture and saw that the importance of God's sovereignty in salvation. When uh, when Thomas Hewley's read scripture, he could not escape the importance of personal conversion and believers baptism. When John, we when John Wesley read it, he saw the necessity of personal holiness and piety. All of these insights are good and right and true. And the Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists that came out of them preserved those insights in each generation. I have good friends who serve as pastors in other denominations, and I have found their insights challenging and edifying to me in my own faith and practice as a Baptist. And I know you all probably have friends in other denominations that do the same for you. And so even though we come from different churches who are formed around specific doctrines and practices, we each benefit the universal church in our own way. Finally, in verses 7 through 16, notice that the church is one in its purpose. In these verses, Paul says that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church for some important purposes. And those gifts are listed in verse 11. He says that he gives to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. The Holy Spirit has worked through the apostles and prophets to give us God's word. And by that same spirit, he has preserved that word for over 2000 years. He has so, pre so perfectly preserved it that the New Testament has been translated into over 1,658 languages. And you can find Bibles everywhere, from these church pews to a hotel room. But God has not left us alone with our Bibles. He has also gifted us with evangelists and pastors and teachers that are intended to build us up in that word. Understand that you cannot faithfully walk in the Christian life without the word of God and the ministry of his church. Paul says that very thing right here. In fact, he gives two positive purposes in the ministry of the church and one protective purpose in the ministry of the church. First, in verse 13, it says that the ministry of the church enables us to attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So the church helps you in walking in your faith and in understanding the gospel and its implications in your life. It is not, uh, you know, we as Christians are not called to take our Bible and get in our closet and come up with our beliefs on our own. We are called to join together as believers and be developed by the ministry of the church through the word of God to grow in our faith. 
My, my friend Rob Fawcett gave an example that I find extremely useful in understanding what this means. And he, the analogy that he gives is of a rule book and a referee. So every sport has a rule book and it has referees, right? And the rule book says how the game will be played, but the game isn't actually played when the rubber meets the road or the, foot, the cleats meet the field. It's not actually played strictly by that rule book, but by the ref who calls the shots, right? Now, when the ref gets the rule book wrong, fans let him know, and even the league can let him know, right? But the game is going to be played based on the calls of that referee, based on whether he sees the foul or not and how he reads the rule book. And the funny thing is, my sons uh, love soccer. I don't know the first thing about soccer. I don't understand what an offsides is in soccer. It's the most ridiculous rule you will ever understand if you, if you watch soccer at all. I don't know why they have an offside. That's why the game is so slow. It's because you can't ever score because you're always offsides. But in any case, that's subject for another day. But, uh, <laughs> but in soccer, you, you got a bunch of Alabama rednecks going to watch a soccer game and nobody understands what's going on. But they think they do. And so when the ref makes a call, so 80 parents holler at him because they think they understand the rule book and ain't the first one of them ever read the rule book. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a side note. Uh, <laughs> but the, the analogy still applies that we have a rule book, which is the word of God, which leads us in the truth of who God is and what he has done in this world. And we have referees, which are the teachers and preachers and deacons of our church who lead us in the way of that word and, and correct us and reprove us when we are going our way. And we can be like that ignorant soccer fan who thinks we know what it says at times and we butt heads with the church because we think we know better. But oftentimes we need to listen to the ref and we need to do what he says, right? And so the gifts of pastors and teachers and deacons, they are given to the church for our unity and for our knowledge. Second, in verses 15 and 16, it says that the ministry of the church joins us to the life and work of Christ. By being a part of the local church, you are participating in the body of Christ. Paul uses this analogy more broadly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says that each one of us are like a different member of a body and that every member of a body has a purpose. The finger has a purpose. The toes have a purpose. The stomach and every part of the body has a purpose. And without that member of the body, the body can't be all that it was created to be. And just as every member of the body is invaluable, so too every member of the church is invaluable. Each one of you has been gifted by God so that you might be a benefit to this church. And this church is not the same without you. This church is not the same without your prayers. This church is not the same without your support. It is not the same without your participation in the life and the ministry of this church. 
And so you are called and united to this church so that you might be a part of the body of Christ and that you might participate in its life. And finally, in verse 14, we see one way that the church protects us. Paul says that the ministry of the church keeps us from being immature children who are tossed about by every error and false teaching that's out there. You know, this is what, to go back to what I said about cafeteria Christianity at the beginning of the sermon. This is as a pastor who has studied God's word for most of my life and has, set, has been called by God to teach and preach and has been doing that for a while now. I can say that it, it is very obvious to me when someone is getting a diet of everything but their local church and the local ministry of their church. It is very obvious to me when someone is pulling from the TV and the radio and from what they read on, online or, or whatever, and they're not being fed by the study uh, with other brothers and sisters in Christ and growing in faith in their local church. You know why it's obvious? Because they look like an immature child. They look exactly like what Paul is describing here. They are thrown around by every wind of doctrine. It is like they are a boat on the waves of the sea being tossed about by a storm. And they don't know what they're talking about, even though they act like they know what they're talking about. They're just pulling stuff together out of thin air and connecting disjointed doctrines that don't have anything to do with each other. And they think themselves smart and, and spiritual when they're not because they haven't done the most basic thing that God commands in Scripture that you do. And that is to be joined together with other believers in a local church to walk together in faith. Don't try to impress me with how much you know about Scripture if you aren't walking in faith with other believers in a local church. If you can't say, I know my preacher and I saw him this last Sunday and we talked together after the service about his sermon, then don't try to impress me with how much theology you know because you don't know it. Sorry. <laughs> you don't know it like you claim to know it if you aren't committed to the Word of God you claim to know. And the Word of God very simply says that we walk together in faith. Otherwise, we are immature children who are tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Outside of the church, we are like sheep thrown to the wolves. In the church, there is sound teaching. Outside of the church, there is the confusion of every wind of doctrine. But in the church, there is the solid foundation of the Word of God. So, brothers and sisters, the church is essential to our sanctification. To walk outside the church is to live apart from the life of Christ. But in the church is found edification and accountability and unity. So let us commit to the church in our attendance, in our support, and in the use of our gifts for the good of the body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church and for the holiness of it, for the fact that it has been purified by the blood of your Son and been brought together by the unity of your Spirit. And Lord, that it is, uh, it is a blood-bought body of saints who has been called to carry out your work. And so, Lord, may we be faithful to its practices. May we be faithful to uh, its purposes. And may we walk together in unity 
May we serve one another as you have called us to, as we live faithfully in the way that you have called us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.